0: Why don't we turn to Psalm chapter 27, like Jade said, we're going to be looking at Psalm 27 this morning, and I'll read the psalm, and then we will uh, get into it. Psalm 27, beginning in verse 1. Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the very word of God. Would you pray with me again as we open it up. Father, please be with us now. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive your word. Help all of us, Lord, to not allow this to go in one ear and out the other, but to to receive it and for it to transform our lives. Father, make us more like David in this psalm. Lord, ultimately make us more like Christ through this word. I ask in the name of Christ. Amen. It's about time for my little three-year-old daughter, Felicity, to realize that she's scared of the dark. That's scary, Daddy, is probably her most common phrase now around the house. The dark can be scary, can't it? I think we all went through a phase as young children uh, when we were scared of the dark. Maybe some of us are still a little scared of the dark. When you were young, it makes me think of the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, where Calvin with his little teddy or stuffed uh, uh, tiger sits on his bed often at night, and, and they're huddling together as the monsters under his bed uh, conspire on how to get them, or try to convince Calvin and Hobbes that they're not really monsters, they're just dust balls uh, that, that haven't been vacuumed. I think we were all scared of the dark at one point. Imaginary monsters in the closet, imaginary monsters under the bed. And for the terrified child hiding under their covers, isn't it the light switch flicked on by mom walking into the room that comforts them? Sweet sound of mom's voice. Imaginary monsters can't survive in the light. One man said that imaginary monsters and inflated anxieties in the light are reduced to reality. I think we can all relate to a fear of the dark. And friend, this psalm is about the fear of enemies in the darkness and the light of God dispelling it. Look at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Except the enemies hiding in this darkness aren't make-believe. They are very, very real. Job said that the wicked dig through houses in the dark, befriending the terrors of deep darkness. The, 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 the enemies that the psalmist is speaking of are anything but make-believe. And the light that dispels the psalmist's fear is not the the flickering of the light switch. It's the light of the reality of God and his truth. Psalm 27 is a song by King David, a man well acquainted with the darkness of human depravity, a man who knew what it was to stare down bloodthirsty barbarians. And this psalm is about how confidence in God cancels fear. Confidence cancels fear. Though we will see that um, David's reality and David's world was quite dramatically different than ours, David was under attack and he had reason to be afraid and yet he wasn't afraid. And I want us to understand why. Because we also have reasons to be afraid, don't we? It's 2021, not 1000 BC, but we also live in a dangerous world. Can't you think of reasons to be afraid? Just think about your situation, your world that you're living in. Can't you think of reasons to grow anxious? But we shouldn't be afraid. And we don't have to be afraid. Why? <laughs> How? Well, this short little song composed by King David shows us the way. We're going to look at it in four parts. Verses 1, 2, and 3 will be the believer's confidence. Verses 4, 5, and 6, the believer's desire or the believer's passion. Verses 7 through 12, the believer's prayer. And finally, verses 13 and 14, the believer's sermon. So let's unpack this psalm by looking first in verse 1 at the believer's confidence. Uh, Do you remember some years back um, that brand with the slogan, No Fear? You'd see it on bumper stickers everywhere and hats. I never understood. I still don't know what they sold or what they did. slogan clearly, No Fear. Maybe some of you still have it stuck on the back of your two thousand two Ford. But that's David's message in this Psalm. Fear is cancelled. Look there in verse one whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Verse three, my heart shall not fear. He is unafraid. Now, this doesn't mean there wasn't good reason to fear. As I said a moment ago, David was well acquainted with terrifying realities, perhaps um, the most terrifying of which were the enemies, the military enemies of Israel. And so I want you to realize that his lack of fear wasn't because there weren't necessary causes to fear. He didn't live some cushy, uh, naive life in a bubble where everything was just grand for David unacquainted with the real world. Oh no, David understood that the ancient world was terrifying and ours is too. O- ours is a dangerous world. But let's think about David's first. Uh, we know that David was a man of war. And so he got, he got war. He's not using some cute little um, convenient metaphor through this psalm of the, the soldier. He No, David... David was acquainted with warfare. Look at verse 2. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. It's pretty dramatic language, isn't it? For David, this had echoes of Goliath. The Philistines saying to David, come to me. I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Verse 3, though an army encamp against me. You, you know in the ancient world how armies would besiege a city. Imagine you, you wake up to the, the calls of the watchmen and you look over the wall. And for David as the king immediately alerted and you see 385,000 Assyrians around the mountains and surrounding the entirety of the city and they've just camped. They've sat, armed, waiting. And sometimes the encamping would last for weeks, even months. Just depends how much food and water you have in the city. A convenient way for a nation to besiege another city is just starve them out until they either die and kill themselves or come out in surrender. An army encamped, a sea of soldiers, and there's no way out. David knew what it was to look terror in the eyes. We're a bit disconnected from this kind of fear, aren't we? Um, For us in the West, wars are always fought over there. I think that's why 9-11 was so shocking to many of us. Because it actually touched our shores it actually touched our cities. War came to our front door. But just ask a king like David or a king like Hezekiah what it's like when hundreds of thousands of vicious, brutal, barbaric soldiers are camping out surrounding your city. And so David, knowing all of this experientially, says, I have no fear. My heart shall not be afraid. And my question for you this morning is, can you say that? Now, you're not afraid of an army encamped, but let's just be honest, anxiety creeps into your heart and fear moves in often. For Some of us daily knocking on the door. Why? I just want, I want you to think, Where you are sitting right now, think, why? What is it that causes you anxiety? It might not be what causes your wife anxiety or what causes your husband anxiety or your children, but what causes you to fear? Can you say, my heart shall not fear? Now, wait a moment. Let's think about this. Isn't fear an emotion that happens to us? Isn't fear a reaction? Uh, We don't always plan out our fears, do we? Fear is something that just strikes us. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the, uh, I think it was like a viral video that went around of these guys would dress up in a Tyrannosaurus Rex costume and they would sit on one side of a corner in the city. And they would be filming and somebody's coming to walk around and they run out with the T-Rex costume, which is obviously from like Party City. And the reactions of the people is hilarious. They're dropping their lattes, they're running into poles, but they're struck with fear. Now they don't in that moment think, oh, what should I, how should I respond to this? They just react because something terrifying has encountered them. They're terrified, they're afraid. And we think, wait a second, isn't fear something that happens to us? I often think of the Israelites having exited Egypt. And there they are, uh, 600,000 men, so many more women and children. And they're fleeing Egypt, successfully delivered by God. And they come to the Red Sea, two mountains on either side of them, and no way through this this sea. And then what happens? We know the story well. They turn to see Pharaoh's army pursuing them. In, In fact, turn back there with me to Exodus chapter 14. I want this to, to, to be imprinted on your mind because it teaches us a valuable lesson about the nature of fear. Look at verse 10 of Exodus 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Terror struck their souls. An army coming to destroy them. But then look in verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not. And I can just imagine them saying, are you kidding me, Moses? That's all we've got is fear. Where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to do? This is an entire nation is about to be slaughtered. And your response, Moses, is fear not. How is that possible? But friends, this is is the pivotal turn. Look again at verse 13. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. So how can Moses command them not to fear? Fear. Because he informs them of who Yahweh is and what Yahweh is going to do. Which tells us something, that the reality of God cancels fear. So often we allow our emotions to lead the way in our life, don't we? What this is showing us is that our theology must inform our feelings. It's what we know that must inform how we feel. It's, it's the, the reality of who God is and what he's going to do that transforms them from fearing to having trust and faith in him. So go back to Psalm 27, and we'll see this worked out in the life of, the life of David. Why doesn't David have fear? Look again at verse 1, because the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. It's the realities of who God is and what God does that cancels David's anxiety. And so who was God for David? He uses three metaphors, uh, light, salvation, and stronghold. Light it's an extensive metaphor used throughout Scripture. Um, God was a light to Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness, uh, uh, um, a pillar of night or a pillar of fire. I'm sorry to give them light at night. Um, and David is demonstrate or using this uh, metaphor of light to demonstrate that the light dispels the darkness. So if uh, darkness is evil and gloom and despair uh, and fear itself. Uh, the light enters and the darkness exits. And David is saying that God is his light. The light of God's reality dispels his darkness. He, he also calls him salvation. He saves David. Uh, Goliath threatened to feed his flesh to the birds. And what happened? Well, it was Goliath who stumbled and fell to his knees. was a stronghold for David. The Lord, a place of protection, a barricade, an impenetrable fortress. And so we see for David, the Lord was light that dispels darkness. He was salvation from enemies. He was an impenetrable fortress for him in time of trouble. So, So let me ask it again, why doesn't David fear? Because the light of who God is and what God does he knew that God is sovereign, holy, powerful, just. Uh, he, he's an avenger of those who, who pursue his beloved ones. He knew these realities that God is omnipotent. Uh, he's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He, he's, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's all-knowing. These theological realities about the person and nature of Yahweh fueled David's confidence. So here's the lesson for us. Good theology fuels confidence. Bad theology fuels fear. Now, you might be sitting here going, I've been coming to Grace Church for 37 years, and I'm a Grace baby. All I've ever known is good theology, in fact, the best theology in the world. Uh, so I know that's what you're thinking. You won't say it, but... <laughs> uh, so you say, but I still I still fear at times. And I've got all the good theology. Well, we'll get to that um, beginning in verse 7, because we often forget it. But I want you to notice the believer's desire in verse 4, how things switch. We've seen the believer's response to the dangers of this world, the unknown, and it's a response of confidence toward the enemies. But verse 4 now takes us to demonstrate the believer's response to God himself. Look at verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Uh, thinking again of Israel and the Exodus, how did they respond when they got through the Red Sea and saw Pharaoh's army destroyed? They worshiped. Miriam wrote a song. Moses led them in praise. This is every true believer's response to God and his deliverance and his character. Um, It's a response of essentially verse four, all I want is him. I I want the God who has delivered me. And and friends, in fact, this is um, really one of the fundamental differences between a a true believer and a false believer or the non-believer. The the believer wants the God who protects and provides. The non-believer wants the protection and provision without the God. I heard one man ask the question if you could have heaven and all of the benefits and God wasn't there, would you still want it? That's what we see here for David. He wants the protection and he gets it. And the response is to want God Himself. One thing have I asked? He wants to dwell in the house of Yahweh. He wants to participate in the worship and the fellowship of other believers. He wants to be in his presence to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh, to to fill his mind and his heart with the reality of, of who God is and, and what he does. And he wants to inquire in the temple of Yahweh, unlike the the fools and the wicked of Psalm 1 who walk in the way of scoffers. No, David's desire is to walk in the way of the Lord, to to inquire of his word, to to find wisdom from from his revelation. It's it's the, the believer's response to the God who so powerfully, so faithfully protects him. And look in verse 5. This is David recounting again what God uh, has done and therefore will do. He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. He, he's confident there's ultimate victory coming. And the response is to sing. Isn't that your response? The, the music team led us phenomenally this morning and to hear your voices. I think that's my favorite part When, uh, in any congregational singing, when the, no offense, but like when the music stops and it's just the voices. Isn't that uh, on the third chorus and you just hear the, your fellow believers confidently belting out, some better than others, the glories and the realities of God. That's got to be the response of The believer, consumed with with praise, um, because the faithfulness of God is the fuel for the Christian's praise. And here David is recounting again what God will do. Um, I wonder do you recount the faithfulness of God in your life? You should. You should. Uh, you have good theology, you read something like this, and maybe you're fearful right now, and you say, I, we, I know these things, but you forget, don't you? It's so helpful to, uh, to often recount who God is and what he's done. It will only fuel your praise to him. The believer's desire is for the God who protects, the God who provides. Uh, but look with me, starting in verse seven, at the believer's prayer, and here we see a shift take place in the psalm. Um, David's confidence has has come from past deliverance, and if you actually notice the the, the verb tenses through the psalm and and whatnot, uh, it's past and future to this point. It's he's done this, he will do this. But here there's there's a shift. It's as if we move from the past and the future and enter the the present. And whenever you see, um, as you're reading the Psalms, imperatives like listen to me or or hear me, um, usually in the middle of a Psalm, it's communicating a sort of immediacy, a a sort of uh, focus on the now. And that's what we see. David is not disrespectfully demanding uh, something from God or commanding something from God, but he is urgently appealing to God. And what we see is as he's thought about the past and he's thought about the future, now verse 7, he cries out, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. And there's a shift in his, if we heard him praying this, I'm I'm sure in the tone of his voice, but certainly in the emphasis of the words to the immediacy of now. In other words, he's delivered me from the darkness before. He'll deliver me from the darkness in the future, but it is dark as night right now. And Lord, I need you now. I don't know what's up I don't know what's down. I don't know what the end will be. Hear me, O Yahweh. Hear me when I cry aloud. Be gracious and answer me. You've told me, verse 8, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? You've told me when I'm in trouble to come to you while I'm here with empty hands and with a lot of needs. So hear me. Hide not your face from me, verse 9. Oh, you who've been my help. You've done it before. Do you see how he's appealing to the past? You've done this before. So right now, as I'm in trouble, hear me now. And then verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. Friends, this is a very broken world. The brokenness of this world is perhaps no more demonstrated than by the fracturing of relationship between parents and children. The home should be a place to come home to for refuge. Parents, the ones who fed you and nursed you and supplied your needs when, when you were helpless, provided shelter and protection. they to be the ones that are closest to you. And yet so many problems in our world can be traced back to the fracturing of the parent-child relationship, whether it's fatherless homes or the abuse of children or just the neglect of them. So many have faced this reality. I know that many of you in this room have are facing this reality. Parents rejecting you because of your love for Christ. Parents rejecting you simply in the pursuit of their own pleasures. You know, as a young child, your your parents should be your superheroes, shouldn't they? We've all seen the arguments on the playground of whose daddy is stronger. Your parents are your world. There's a lot of fearful things, but not when you're in daddy's arms. Not when mommy's around. My daughter is... Uh, now, when she gets scared running to me, and now uh, it's more often running into me full speed, and just wraps her arms, and you know, I'm walking around the house with my daughter on my leg. Uh, she feels safe when she's with her mommy, when she's with her daddy. It's because we seek acceptance from our parents, don't we? Yeah, they, the world might reject me, all the kids on the playground might think I'm stupid, but my parents they think I'm great. They provide a listening ear when you come home and you've had a tough day and, and mom is there to hear you. They, they provide guidance. It's why they, the children ask so many questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? And that should continue in their life. And, and parents protect their children. It's natural. It's how it was designed. But listen again to what David says. My father and my mother have forsaken me. They've abandoned me. They've hurt me. Perhaps this was by hatred. Or perhaps it was simply by death. They're not there for me anymore. I know that some of you are walking through this right now. The tensions, the shattered relationships, the broken hearts. It hurts. I I know it hurts. You know, you might read the psalm and see David with an army encamped around him. And You might say, I wish it was just an army encamped around me. I wish the, the enemy was just out there. I wish it was just a, a health problem or something with work. But the fact that it's the ones closest to me, I can't take that. Maybe you look at David in this psalm and say, oh, he had it easy. If only it was something physical. But my mother has rejected me. My father doesn't even want to see me. The pain of being rejected by parents feels unbearable. We need to hear what David says next, don't we? But the Lord will take me in. Haven't you seen that in this psalm? What our parents are designed to provide, God provides? He's our guide, our guardian, our savior. He accepts us and he listens to us even when our parents don't. It's interesting to note uh, David talking about parents. Why? Because after listening to so many truths about God, who he is and what he does, you realize that what God provides is what a parent is meant to provide. But, But ultimately, God is the ultimate parent. He's our ultimate father. And so even for those of you who don't have shattered relationships with your parents, your parents are meant to point you to the ultimate parent, the ultimate protector and provider, the ultimate guide and guard. And those sweet words, the Lord will take me in. And so in verses 11 and 12, he simply asks him to do what a parent ought to do. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me and they breathe out violence. David's simply saying, Lord, be the parent you've promised to be. Guide me and protect me. And then there's a final transition. Verses 13 and 14 is the believer's sermon. And this is where uh, David goes from speaking to God Now he's speaking to himself. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's an interesting term, the land of the living. Essentially what he's saying is, I'm confident that I will see the goodness of God toward me in this life. This is Psalm 23, six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He, he's confident, and he's reminding himself of that confidence. And so there's only one thing left to do, wait for the Lord. I know, just as David knows, just as you know, one of the most difficult aspects of walking through trial and darkness is time one of the most, if not the most painful ingredient of any trial. Uh, when I was playing soccer, often at the end of a training session, we would have to do ab, you know, like little ab exercises. And the worst was planks where you have to hold your arms and hold yourself up. And I remember in those moments of uh, pain, you're already tired and you've got a minute of planking. I, I would tell myself, you can do anything for a minute and then someone puts their knee down, so it becomes two minutes. You can do anything for two minutes. We can can, uh, endure pain in short spurts, can't we? It's when the days turn into weeks, and the weeks into months, and the months turn into years. And now you've been walking through this trial for 15 years, and you don't know when it will end. Time the most painful ingredient of any trial. And so following the reminder to wait, he says, be strong. Let your heart take courage. Again, with the military metaphor, this is often would have been the last words that the soldiers would have heard as the barbarians were coming over the mountain. Men, be strong. Take courage. Because that's when they were their knees were threatening to buckle. And so he reminds himself again, wait for the Lord. We're so often tempted to rush about and do it ourselves, aren't we? Instead of waiting on the Lord. No, 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 I'll fix this. No, 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 I'll sort this out. But the reality is, so often God's purpose takes longer than we would want it to. And so for us to wait Uh, requires us to admit that we're powerless in this trial. Uh, It's it's an accepting of, of the trial. It's an accepting of the darkness that isn't of despair. It's not an accepting of resignation, but it's an accepting of trust and patience. The Lord will care for me. So my friends, when you understand who God is and what God is doing, you know life becomes very simple. Life becomes a matter of simple, patient trusting. It's summed up by that children's song, Trust and Obey. There's there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Wait on him. Don't be anxious. He will act. He will protect. He will provide. He is in control. And so as David preached these truths to himself, we are to preach these truths to ourselves as well. Friends, sometimes in the darkness of this life, we feel trapped. We don't know which way is up, which way is down. The night is thick. The darkness of the defeat of trial. And sometimes that darkness can last for years. C.S. Lewis once wrote a meditation about standing in the darkness. Listen to what he said. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved, so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90 million odd miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. You see what Lewis is saying is standing in the dark tool shed where there is no light, the the beam of light all of a sudden shines through and, and looking at it, it doesn't really do anything for him. Just analyzing it from here, he sees a beam, but once he steps into the light beam and he looks through the light beam, everything changes. You you don't see the night anymore. In fact, you're looking outside of the tool shed altogether. You're looking beyond it, 90 odd million miles away, he says, to the sun itself. And everything changes. You know, waiting on God can feel like standing in the dark tool shed. But that's so often because we're looking along the beam of light instead of looking through the beam of light. Some of you here may have never stepped into the light. For you, you're still enslaved by fear. I wonder if some of you here don't even believe the words that David's saying. This is nice poetry, but I don't believe you, David. I don't believe you that when you stood before Goliath, you were not afraid. I don't believe you that when the Amalekites stole your wives and your children and plundered your city, that you weren't afraid. I don't believe you, David. I don't think that kind of... Freedom from fear is possible. I told you earlier that the metaphor of light is often used throughout Scripture. I want to close by just showing you one more use of that metaphor. Turn with me to John chapter 1. not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Turn to John chapter 8 and verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. My friends, when you step into the light beam of the reality of who Jesus Christ is, the darkness cannot overcome it. It, So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that we see in Galatians chapter 5, the the first things mentioned as a result of this life in Christ is love, joy, peace. It makes sense then, Jesus as light, when the apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 4, do not be anxious for anything. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Have no fear of anything, but, but let your fears be made known to God and, and, and pray to him with thanksgiving. And then these words, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. A peace that you can't explain A peace that clearly isn't coming because of your circumstances. Because the army of cancer is knocking on my door. The army of rejection from the ones I've loved the most is knocking on my door. There's an army encamped around me. And I don't have fear. Because you've stepped into the light of Jesus Christ. One more in the book of John, chapter 14 and verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. For those of you who don't yet know freedom from fear, The light that dispels the darkness of fear has come near to you. His name is Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh himself. The light of the world. And he's offering you to step into the light. He's offering to dispel the darkness of your own soul. The darkness of this dark world. That though you walk through this world still. You walk through it looking through the light beam of his truth. Of his life of his peace. And in that light, all fear is canceled. Let's pray. Father, help us please to remember these truths, to remind ourselves ourselves of these realities, that we would walk in the light of Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.